Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Do you like sports? Because we like sports. Let's talk about sports. It's Sports Jack. Sports Jack. It's Sports Jack. Sports Jack presents Irish Tales with Chuck Freebie and Bob Nagel. Stories from the land of the fighting Irish on the Studio DNA Podcast Network. Welcome to another edition of Irish Tales. Chuck Freebie with the tale master himself, Bob Nagel. Well, I was thinking about how you know tough a start it's been for Marcus Freeman, and yet everybody seems to be so positive. Oh, he'll be okay. He'll be fine. And in the past, you know, when there's been transition and there's been a start of a new program, a new coach, people have been a little less patient than, uh, than what we've seen here. But I think everybody's really believing in uh, Marcus and what he's done here already, what he did at Ohio State, and uh, very optimistic about the future. Transitions have been part of college football for years and years and years, obviously. Anytime a new coach comes in, it's a little bit different. And I know that you go back to the days of Era Parsegan. That was in your youth. And when, uh, well, quite frankly, it was. Yeah. And and when Era took over the Notre Dame program, in 1964, actually the, the winter of 63, he had to go through a transition. Now, obviously, his was smoother in terms of the win-loss record, but when a new coach comes in, it's always the key word today is culture that we hear. Right. But it, it's always kind of establishing your brand and what you're going to do. Part of that for ERA, though, was the evaluation of personnel. Right, and I uh, remember spending an afternoon with him. We were at a picnic for another cause, but uh, sitting in the corner of the table with three or four of us, and he said, you know, when I took over at Notre Dame, I knew more about their players than they did. You know, Northwestern had beaten Notre Dame four times in a row, and he had scouted most of those players, hoping that he could get some of them to come to Northwestern. So he knew their background, he knew their families, and that type of thing. And then he also knew that Joe Kuharik had a obviously a, a different mindset about how to play football in that he had come from the pros. He had been with the Washington Redskins, and he believed in big. He wanted big running backs. He wanted big guys in the line. He wanted, you know, uh, all of it to be an NFL type of a thing. And Eris said, I, I kept looking at these guys, like a couple of the guys at running back, and I said, man, he's – 
he's a good athlete, but he's not a running back. And uh, so that's one of the reasons we were able to beat him. So when I came in, uh, so we, you know, we said that first of all, it's going to be a little bit of a different mindset because I'm a college coach as opposed to a pro coach. And we've seen that transition uh, with pro coaches, you know, coming, uh, John McLeod had a difficult time transitioning to the college game. Right. Charlie Weiss had a difficult time. Uh, even Dave Poulin, a good good buddy of mine, was a NHL player for 13 seasons, came in to be the head hockey coach, and he admitted later on that it took him four or five years to catch on to the idea of being a college coach and how to motivate those uh, those young players. But when Eric came in, uh, he had a guy named Paul Costa. And when he divided the team up, he said, running backs over here, linemen over there, and Costa went with the running backs. So what are you doing over here? Well, I'm a running back. So I'm not sure what you are, but you're not a running back. So he put him over with the uh, lineman, and he wanted to beat an All-American all defensive tackle because he was quick and he was strong and everything, but uh, Arrow wanted different type of people in his backfield. And so he moved people around. And one of the things that Arrow also had done throughout his coaching career, certainly at Notre Dame, was to recruit quarterback. He, he'd bring in 12 quarterbacks a year, and everybody's like, Wow, that's a steep competition. Well, of course, you have to remember then there weren't the scholarship limits. There are not right, exactly, and uh, those are usually you know a high school quarterback is the best athlete, the biggest, strongest, smartest kid, and they put him at quarterback. So when he gets to college football, chances are he doesn't have all the tools to be the quarterback that you want. I know my good friend Tom Creevy came from Mishawaka Marion, where he was an All-American quarterback, running an option program. And so when he got to Notre Dame and they asked him to perform some passing duties, they figured out quickly that he needed to find another home. <laughs> and uh, he did. He wound up being a backup defensive end on a national championship team because he was a really good athlete. And that whole uh, secondary in 1966 when Eric came in, uh, by 1966 he won the national championship and he had Shane O'Leary and Smithberger in the secondary and they had all come in as quarterbacks. So uh, he, you know, and when he hit the ground running, uh, the first thing that happened was John Hewitt got hurt, and they thought, you know, surgery and that type of thing. He had another doctor that said, no, I think we can just get this to heal up, and it did. And, of course, Hewitt won the Heisman Trophy. To me, the the story of John Hewitt, one of the more remarkable ones, because how far down was he on the depth chart? He was like fourth or fifth. When Eric came in, he hadn't even been considered uh, by the Kuharic administration. And, uh, again, they had a different philosophy of what they wanted to do. And Eric was looking, number one, do you do what I ask you to do? <laughs> I'm not looking for a cowboy. I'm not looking for a gunslinger. I'm looking for a guy who can help me execute my offense. And so they did. And, you know, we got guys like uh, uh, Wolski and Conjar. Good, strong running backs. Uh, they established a running game behind a big offensive line with Gedeke and Regner and those guys. And they were very successful, and so passing became an easier thing to do because you were running the ball really well. And so John Hewitt was able to hook up with Jack Snow on a regular basis and wound up winning the Heisman Trophy. And so the transition in that first year, they were a, they were a, a knockdown pass away from beating Southern Cal being national champions in Arrow's first year. But again, the transition was smoother because Arrow was, number one, a college coach. Number two, he had beaten Notre Dame four years in a row. And he knew their personnel really well. And, the, and I think when he made all the changes, the guys really believed in him because, of, yeah, you know, that guy should, shouldn't be playing there. And then he also did a couple of things that I'm aware of uh, where he established rules about where guys could go, where they could be, and that type of thing. And he, he caught a couple of them in the first 10 days he was there, 
go into a place he didn't want him to go to. So he walked in and he tapped him on the shoulder. He said, turn in your gear. And they said, we're suspended. He goes, no, you're done. And so, you know, like in the Marine Corps, they always go after the biggest, toughest guy. Right. So he went after a couple of guys everybody figured would be, you know, starters or regulars and told them they were done. They had violated a team rule and those weren't up for discussion. And so the discipline was established. Uh, nobody worked harder than Eric Percy, and the players saw that. You know, I mean, he had a great staff around him, guys that he really trusted, and they trusted him, and they worked really hard. But the transition for him was so much uh, easier because you got the right guy. And I know that Dan Devine was considered heavily at that time to be the head coach, and Father Hetzberg really liked Eric Percy and you know, fiery Armenian. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and liked his uh, character and uh, made the hire. So that was a really smooth transition. And when you, you know, when you look back at all the transitions, even before that with Leahy, you know, he'd come back from the war. Now, he had been the head coach before the war, but when they came right. back from the war, he had recruited, you know, Moose Krause recruited Marines and uh, Leahy recruited Navy people. And uh, I don't know if Colonel Stevens was actually recruiting, but a lot of Army guys came as well because the GI Bill allowed them to go anywhere they wanted to. And in the book Leahy's Lads, Jack Connor wrote about how there was such an esprit de corps because if you did get a jersey and the first home game they played, 47 letter winners didn't get a jersey. And Which those, is incredible. Oh, yeah. I mean, letter winners from Notre Dame and other schools who would come in there. And, and so if you got a sweater, if you got a chance to play, you had an obligation, not just to the coach and everybody, but the guy next to you is just as good as you are. And there's no guarantee you're going to get that jersey the next week. Right. And so the uh, level of – and, of course, they went undefeated for four years. And then when things uh, evened out a little bit as far as recruiting, uh, uh, frankly, he was still a very good coach. But uh, the dominance that they had during that uh, four-year span, uh, being undefeated, one tie, was pretty impressive. So you look at each one of the individual uh, changes, and as we got – closer you know when Eric Parsegian uh, wanted to sit out a year and maybe get his health back to 100 percent and they decided not to do that Dan Devine came in and Dan was uh, I remember that transition was kind of different because Eric had a lot of guys that were really good athletes Tom Paris was a good mm-hmm. fullback and he had uh, you know I thought Frank Alaka was a pretty good quarterback and he had different people but Dan came in and Jerome Heavens was a freshman and Jerome Heavens had a blue jersey on the first day of practice. And everybody's looking at him like, how'd that happen? Because you had to earn a blue jersey. But Dan had been through transitions, and his philosophy was, I'm not going to count on the other coach's players. I want my guys. Okay, so he made the transition. And they, you know, they struggled a little bit um, at, you know, in different seasons. They did win a championship in 77. But that was after a, a disappointing start against Mississippi in Game 2. But uh, the guys really rallied around each other and, and got it together and got it done. But uh, it was different. That transition from a pro coach to a college program is, is really difficult. Well, and that thought of my guys, I mean, when we get to Brian Kelly, that was one of the sticking points with him as well. The other more fabled transition, obviously divine to Parsegan important, but going from Jerry Faust to Lou Holtz, mm-hmm. and of course Lou is hired before the season is even over right. for the Irish. They get absolutely embarrassed in Faust's final game right. down at Miami, and 
the team comes back on the plane, and I'll allow Bob to take the tail from there. <laughs> yeah. Well, they were flying back from Miami. When they got to South Bend, the airport wasn't in great shape, so the pilot decided, I'm going to go to Chicago. And so we had to not only fly to Chicago, but then we had to wait for all the buses. United Limo was involved at that time. All the buses had to leave Granger area where they parked and drive up to O'Hare, pick up the players, then drive them back. So when they got back here, it was like 4.30 in the morning. And Coach Faust wanted to meet with everybody in the football auditorium, and he did. And he thanked the seniors. You know, he, obviously it was an emotional time for him. And then uh, everybody started to get up to leave. He said, now all the rest of you, other than the seniors, Coach Lou Holtz is here, and he wants to meet with you now. And they're looking around like, you got to be kidding me. It's like 5 o'clock in the morning. And it's been a long it's night. It's been a long, tough night. And so when uh, Lou came in, uh, the players were kind of – frustrated as you'd expect they had their knees uh, hung over chairs in front of them they had their hats on backwards they had they didn't look like a representative group and so uh, Lou said I was misinformed evidently I was told the team that's going to represent the University of Notre Dame would be in this room I'm going to walk out for approximately 10 minutes when I come back I expect to find that group here and he walked out and Skip told me Skip Holtz was there he said it was like listening to popcorn in a microwave it was pretty quiet for a while, and then there was a pop, and then another pop, and a couple more pops. And what happened was somebody said, what was that about? And somebody said, about getting your feet off the furniture, about t- taking your hat off in the building. It was about, And they really started to go at each other. And so there was a new, sh- new sheriff in town, and he had some new deputies. And when Lou came back in 10 minutes later, uh, the popcorn had stopped popping. It got quiet for a while. He went back in, and they were all sitting upright and uh, had their hats off and he said, gentlemen, we're going to get this sucker turned around, and I mean like now. You got the rest of the weekend. Of course, it's 6 o'clock Sunday yeah. morning. And he says, we're going, to be on the, we're going to be working out starting at 6 o'clock Monday morning. Now, don't get there at 6. Get there at 530 because we're going to start working at 6. Get you out there in time to go to breakfast and go to your first class. So uh, it was like, wow, you know, it's going to happen now. And some of the guys thought maybe it wasn't going to be that intense, and it was. And they had some barrels set up around there, and they used most of them that first morning, and then there was less and less and less. For regurgitational purposes. Exactly, just in case. Yeah. Yeah. And and so the guys uh, were quickly informed that we're changing uh, what we did under Coach Faust. And, you know, everybody loved Jerry, and he did the best he possibly could with the with you know, his, uh, his beliefs and what he wanted to do. And, uh, you know, to his credit, we didn't have a great first year under Lou Holtz, but we won a couple of games, that, especially the Southern Cal game, which was really great. But the uh, thing was Jerry had brought in some pretty quality athletes. They just, again, some out of position, some uh, needing to uh, tighten up the ship a little bit. But uh, it was it was pretty uh, interesting, obviously. But uh, Lou was uh, ready to – for the challenge because he'd been the head college coach for so many years. So Well, you, it is remarkable when you look back at the Faust years and think of how many of those players went on to success in the NFL. Yeah. So it's not as though Notre Dame had a paucity of talent. They, as you said, they just they didn't have people in the right places. They didn't weren't teaching the right techniques, right. whatever the case may be. So you have the transition from Jerry Faust to Lou Holtz. Of course, Notre Dame goes through – a number of coaches, but let's get you up to the Brian Kelly years. Because, right. again, 
a transition. You're coming out of Charlie Weiss and a, and basically three very disappointing seasons right. at the end of Charlie Weiss. And I remember Brian Kelly at his initial press conference talking about reestablishing Notre Dame as relevant, reestablishing them as traditional, talking about how he grew up watching the the Lindsey Nelson replays. Oh, yeah. And I I asked him, and a few years ago I was kind of known maybe for asking old smart-alecky questions <laughs> once in a while. And I asked him, I said, but, but I thought the question had relevance. Right. I said, you're talking about a generation that doesn't know Lindsey Nelson. They know Lindsey Lohan. Right. How do you... <laughs> How do you make Notre that all that tradition that you grew up with relevant to them? And he had a he had a difficult balancing act, I thought, in his transition because I'm not sure, even though he was here for as long as he was and had as much success as he was, that he necessarily ever really embraced some of the traditions of the place. Yeah. Well, I totally agree with you there no question about his ability to coach and his resume was what you really were impressed with you know he came out of all that success he had up at grand valley state then he went to central michigan mm-hmm. and that's a pretty good leap but it was very successful and he went to cincinnati wow you know a couple undefeated seasons on there so who do you who are you looking for well we'd like to have a guy with experience success the brian kelly was kind of the guy and you know obviously as you said, he grew up, he had that passion for Notre Dame. When he came in, uh, you know, we had been through turmoil, uh, five coaches in seven or eight years, and uh, one guy for two days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we didn't get into the George O'Leary transition, but that 10 seconds <laughs> will be done. Yeah. But he came in, and uh, I thought he surrounded himself with some pretty good coaches, and I thought uh, early on that uh, his uh, – hands-on approach was maybe a little different than what the guys were used to. He he micromanaged a little bit. And, uh, you know, they had some success. And I just I thought his his coaching tenure in the, in the 12 years he was here went from uh, kind of micromanaging to trusting the coaches to trying to be more of a team manager, being more of the guy in charge, which we've seen guys like Bobby Bowden and, and of course, down in Alabama, some guy down there with a checkered hat who was uh, pretty successful. And uh, so guys who'd been there quite a while had become more administrators. I've got this guy running my offense, this guy running my defense, and I'm going to make sure that everything gets taken care of. And, and uh, you know, Brian seemed to, uh, I don't know, well, I don't want to say tired of the place, but there's a lot of other opportunities out there. And uh, he's watching these other guys making seven, eight million dollars a year and thinking, why am I not doing that? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, this is a vow of poverty you take. No, it's not, but it's a little different here at Notre Dame. But it was, you know, I thought they treated him very well. They gave him all these facilities, uh, practice facilities. Uh, staff increased by about 100% from the time he started. So I think Notre Dame did all they could to, to help with the success and uh, wished him well. I think that was one of the biggest things of the Kelly transition is the facility improvements. Um, really, not only the Goog had been put in under Charlie Weiss, but then the building of the current Irish Athletics Center, the creation of a training table for the athletes for years. And this boggles the mind given the current climate of college football. 
But for years, practices would get done over at Cartier Field. What, about 6.15? 6.15, And guys would have to bust their butt to get to the South or North Dining Hall by 6.45 because that's when it closed. Yeah. And if you didn't get there, even though you're a Notre Dame football player, you didn't get fed. Yeah. If you had one of those days where you had a, a lit a lab yeah. afterwards, you had to you know, take care of your, your academics. I mean, it hasn't been easy, but uh, you're right. They had put a lot of programs in and uh, been very helpful. And, uh, you know, time is such a different thing now than it used to be. You know, players used to play football for four months a year. Now it's a year-round training program. Uh, coaches used to talk about how they can't wait for the golf season, and that disappeared for a lot of them. I mean, some of them still played golf, and but well, uh, that was Tyrone Willingham's problem, wasn't it? Yeah, he played a lot of golf, but Tyrone had also come from being with Mark or uh, Coach Green up at uh, Minnesota, where they had a different mindset about coaching and time management and that type of thing. And well, the pro program is far different than the college program, oh, yeah. anyway. It is, and, the, and they rely on the players to be in condition and everything themselves because that's their franchise. That's what they are. Well, and if you're not, we'll find somebody else. That's right. It's called a free agent, I believe. But, uh, yeah, when he came in, he had spent a lot of time with uh, – uh, not Mark Green. Uh, 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 Dennis Green. Dennis Green. And uh, so when he came in here, I remember the assistant coaches used to uh, kind of meet for a regular afternoon meeting on Thursday around 4 o'clock for maybe a refreshment and some conversation. And I was like, what are you guys doing here? Thursday, he says, I'll see you Saturday. And it was different because, you know, in the pros, you do it that way because, you know, the quarterback, it's up to him to go in and look at video and, and be ready. But in the college game, it was, it was different. And uh, so, you know, Tyrone was, again, a, a wonderful man. And uh, he did uh, have a different mindset about what he was going to do. He had been successful at Stanford. Yep, very. But then I think that time in the pros changed him a little bit. And so uh, it was it was difficult. And, you know, when he left, uh, he was going to stay another year. Kevin White wanted to keep him another year. Uh, some powers to be at our ladies' university came forward, and so we want to make a change. And we're going to get Urban Meyer. His transition wasn't very smooth because he never came here. And they thought they could talk him into doing that. And one, I remember one of the comments was that we tell him we'll give him anything he wants, and said you can't give me everything I want because at Florida, I get players in that I can't get into Notre Dame, and uh, that's not a slash on Florida. It's just the way it is. And so we didn't get uh, the guy that we thought we might get, and we wound up looking for other people. We got the, the two day stay. George O'Leary, and then they thought, well, George was actually before Tyrone. Tyrone, yeah. yeah. But um, but after after Tyrone, they wound up getting uh, Charlie Weiss, right? Which there was pressure there to bring in a Notre Dame guy with coaching pedigree. And I don't know if anybody knows this or not, but Charlie Weiss coached Tom Brady. He was very reticent Tommy? to mention it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But going back to Brian Kelly, I really think. Bob, he made two transitions in his time because not only did he make the transition from Charlie Weiss, he made the transition from 2016 Brian Kelly to 2017 and beyond Brian Kelly. At a certain point, Jack Swarbrick told him, it's either you or some members of your staff. Right. 
And Brian Kelly said, hate to see you guys go, but you gots to go. Yeah. And the change, especially in the strength and conditioning program, going from Paul Longo to Matt Bayless was massive. It, it's And it continues to be. You know, it's just a, a great job that, that they're doing in the weight room. Uh, and, and, Chuck, it's interesting you point out that time frame because I, I totally agree with you that uh, there was a point where Brian, I don't think his emphasis was being the coach at Notre Dame forever and following in their traditions. You know, he did away with the, the team mass. He did the walk across campus. He did – uh, they did away with the luncheons. Uh, there's a lot of things that were part of the program that he was no longer interested in being a part of. And I thought by the end of his time here at Notre Dame, he was still a very successful coach. He had some really good assistant coaches. He had some great athletes on the team. I think he was looking for more. I think he was looking for another step. I think he was open to the opportunity of, uh, of going somewhere else. And obviously when LSU was looking, I uh, his resume was still one that they were interested in, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see what the transition is down at LSU. Well, I think Brian Kelly, and I said this the night that he took the job, he looked at the fact that Ed Orgeron won a national title there and Les Miles won a national title there, and Brian Kelly said to himself, I'm a better coach than those two, and he's probably absolutely right yeah. whether he can win the national championship there as those two did. I don't know. But for those of you who bleed Notre Dame, this was the episode for you as we talked about transitions. And we shall wrap things up here. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Irish Tales. Until next time, for Bob Nagel, Chuck Freebie, go Irish. You've been listening to Sports Yak Presents Irish Tales on the Studio DNA Podcast Network. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.